0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell the immediate past National President of the Australian Institute
1: of International Affairs. Alan, hello. Uh, That was very well spotted, Darren. Yes, um, indeed. After five years in this position, I've handed over as National President to my friend, Heather Smith. Heather, as many will remember, a guest on our podcast, of course, has had a storied career in academia, economics, government and business. She's worked as Secretary of the Commonwealth Department of Communications and of Industry. She was the Deputy Director General in the Office of National Assessments and Deputy Secretary of DFAT. She's on the board of a couple of ASX-listed companies and has also served on the boards of the United States Studies Centre and of China Matters. She's the first woman to be National President in the Institute's 90-year history, although I should also say that we have had, and at the moment have, many distinguished female state presidents. Heather will bring a different and broader background to the job from mine. She'll also bring, putting it gently, a different generational perspective. I couldn't be happier. And I've already warned her uh, that you and I are going to want her to get her back on the podcast as soon as she's uh, got her feet under the table in the new job.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, Alan, absolutely. Well, the AAA was very lucky to have you, Alan, so congratulations, on a very successful tenure. Thank you. But your five years as national president came after a much longer association with the Institute. Am I right?
1: Uh, Yeah, you are. I've uh, mentioned this often before, but just quickly, I was lucky enough to have a history teacher at Ashwood High School in the early 1960s, who was a member of the Institute, who knew about my interest in a career in foreign relations. And whenever an interesting speaker turned up at the Victorian branch, Lucy Mayo, which was her name, here's to our teachers, would send me off with a note asking if I could sit in the back of the room quietly and listen to the discussion. And it was my first experience of grown-up debate about Australia and, uh, and the world. Over the years, of course, I maintained my contact with the Institute and the different aspects of my eccentric career in foreign policy, intelligence, think tanks, academia, all from their different perspectives reinforced in me the importance of the mission of the Institute, which again, as you and I have discussed before, is to help Australians know more, understand more and engage more in international affairs, and all three of those things matter. So my thanks to Bryce Wakefield, Zara Kempton, and my colleagues on the Institute's board for their support over the f- past five years. I really enjoyed every minute of it. I enjoyed the, n- the new things that we set up, like this uh, podcast, the seed for which you gently uh, planted with me soon after I took the job, Darren. Isabella Keith's uh, The Week in Foreign Affairs column in Australian Outlook, the transformation of our ability to make events right across the country available to all our members as a result of the uh, the way COVID taught us to engage differently in so many different areas, and a series of monographs on Australian diplomatic history. So with that and the continuing great work of the editors of the Australian Journal of International Affairs and uh, regular talks and discussions around the country. I've, uh, I've had a very uh, happy and rewarding time, but I will continue to be a member and to, uh, to pay, pay my annual subscription to the ACT branch. And I look forward to continuing this podcast, maybe with a new introduction, saying that Alan Gingell is a fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and an honorary professor in the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific. Oh, Alan, that's, that's quite a
0: mouthful. Um, but look, absolutely well earned, so it will be my pleasure. Well, it's Sunday, the 2nd of April today, and we're going to zoom out a bit for a bigger picture episode on the topic of Cold War II, or a new Cold War, in light of, well, many recent events, but especially Xi Jinping's visit to Russia. We agreed, Alan, that I would start us off with a bit of a theoretical perspective. Now, the the term Cold War was used by George Orwell in a 1945 essay exploring the social implications of, quote, a state which was at once unconquerable and in a permanent state of Cold War with its neighbours, end quote. The reason Orwell was writing about an unconquerable state was its possession of nuclear weapons. And it was that new reality that Orwell and many others at the time were trying to grapple with for the first time. But the term would ultimately, as we all know, come to mean a prolonged state of animosity between the United States-led West and the Soviet bloc in the aftermath of World War II a competition between political and socioeconomic systems, which played out, of course, as a strategic rivalry. Now, when I think about the Cold War, and when I studied it during my PhD and before, the major lessons I take away are first, and I think most importantly, Cold Wars are defined by their potential to become hot. And so if they stay cold, that's actually a very good thing. And there were, as we all know, several near misses during Cold War I, if we're going to call it that, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I don't think, as a theorist, I can say that it was structural factors alone, for example, the risk of mutually assured destruction, that were the sole reason why the two superpowers never directly fought each other. Individual decision-making mattered as well. The point then is that both sides of a Cold War need to be acutely sensitive to the pathways and the risks of hot war, even as each is looking to defend its national interests. A cold war should be encouraged if if the alternative is hot. Second, the global and multi-dimensional nature of cold wars, where competition can potentially manifest anywhere geographically around the world and concern a broad range of not just geopolitical, but economic, social, and ideological factors, all this means that the competitors in a Cold War will have multiple sites of contestation and potentially multiple crises, multiple risks of hot war to manage simultaneously. And third, while there is a library's worth of literature on why the USSR lost Cold War I, there is one variable that I want to highlight specifically today, And I'm going to call it state strength, which means the capacity of the state to mobilize all of its resources towards a rivalry, towards strategic competition. And here I'm channeling an argument made by one of my PhD supervisors, Aaron Friedberg, who back in a 1992 article argued that the United States' success was perhaps counterintuitively due to the relative weakness of the American state. What do I mean by weakness? Well, you had competing interest groups, economic groups, social groups, and so forth, who were competing in a political system that was enabled by liberal political institutions, but that had the consequence or the impact of forestalling, if you will, the complete and utter mobilisation of the US state towards this goal of winning existential conflict. So, For all the legitimate complaints about the rise of the US's military-industrial complex during this time, to this day, Friedberg actually flips the point and says it's actually somewhat puzzling that this military-industrial complex wasn't even larger. In contrast, the Soviet state, being a much stronger state, was allowed or facilitated the creation of what Friedberg called a garrison state, in which... Almost all of the state's resources are mobilized towards competition and the preparation for war, but which, as a consequence, sapped the economy of its strength and militarized its society, leading to its eventual collapse. So, the irony here is that the inability of the US to fully mobilize in response to the threat posed by the USSR prevented. Or forestalled the enactment of strategies that would have overextended and exhausted it the way we've seen empires overextend throughout history. So, in this sense, the First Cold War offers a lesson that I see repeated regularly, actually, in studying political, economic, and social systems that strengths can very quickly become weaknesses. So, enough theory, Alan. As someone who remembers the First Cold War, can you tell us how you think of the term Cold War and whether you find it an analytically useful concept? Or maybe, actually, can I ask the question this way? What are the key lessons you think policymakers need to learn from the first Cold War, how it was fought
1: and how it ended? Very good questions, Darren. You might uh, remember that we were both congratulating ourselves on the last podcast, a bit smugly perhaps, on our openness to what you called epistemic humility.
0: Uh, I do remember,
1: Alan, but I recall no smugness. (laughs) On your part, perhaps. Uh, Look, here's a good example. I've criticised people who have used the term new Cold War to describe the US-China clash. I was around during the Cold War, I say, and this is no Cold War. But, look, on reflection, I think I've been thinking about the term too specifically. The original phrase Cold War grabbed attention because, as you said, it was necessary to describe the entirely new circumstances which the potential use of nuclear weapons introduced into international relations. I still don't believe that what we're seeing now is simply a repetition of the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States with new players. Moscow's threat to the West was always essentially militarily Moscow and Washington could agree on what the Cold War was, that is, a bipolar structure which clearly divided the world into spheres of influence and resisted efforts to alter those spheres over time. And because they agreed on this, it was possible for them to develop effective lines for managing the dispute. Now, my fear at this stage is that China, the United States and their various partners cannot even agree on what constitutes the foundations of the dispute. We talked about some of this last time, including what we mean by asking China to be less assertive. And our newly arrived ambassador in Washington, um, Kevin Rudd, has spoken about some of the same problems. So the continuity that exists with the first Cold War lies in the urgent need to find new ways of understanding and managing the international order. I've concluded that we need to talk up the drama rather than tamp it down if we are to grab the necessary attention of policymakers.
0: Oh, interesting, Alan. We were obviously quite critical last episode of claims that war with China over Taiwan is happening within a handful of years but I find myself agreeing with you that we do need ways to engage policymakers and the public on the complexity and the risks of the challenges faced. The question is, is Cold War II that frame? If you squint, you can certainly see the parallels, the ideological dimension, the geopolitical slash territorial conflict, perhaps where Cuba then is Taiwan today the race for technological supremacy, the competition for influence globally, and above all, we cannot emphasize this enough, the potential for outbreak of a hot war. The historian Neil Ferguson points out that most people don't notice when cold wars begin, and that it took until the outbreak of a hot war, in this case the Korean War in 1950, for the US to realize fully that it was in a Cold War, the nature of its rivalry with the Soviet Union. And you might say, again, that the first hot war of this new Cold War is Ukraine, which has also jolted many in the West, especially in Europe, into action. There are, of course, many differences, starting with the deep degree of economic interdependence and moving, I would say, to modern communications technologies, including social media and their impact on politics and society. But to channel Ferguson again here, if the label Cold War II is to be useful, it will be because it does capture people's attention, but also because it reminds us that it was not inevitable at all that Cold War I would stay cold, and that it was not inevitable at all that the West would win. And there are policy proposals that flow from each of these lessons, as we've discussed many times before. First, on the importance of both deterrence and reassurance as a way of preventing hot war. It will be obviously a great success if Cold War II stays cold. And second, on the breadth and creativity needed in policy for not just for Cold War II to stay cold, but for it to end in a way that is consistent with our interests. And on this, I want to recommend the recent China Talk podcast with the Soviet historian Stephen Kotkin. And one of his points is that the U.S. has extensive experience fighting Cold Wars and many lessons that have been learned over time. So this should actually be the preferred mode of competition for Washington. Now, of course, the nature of U.S. politics has changed dramatically in recent decades, even if the institutions themselves have been fairly stable and seem to be holding together. So regardless, I agree with your phrasing, Alan, that we need to find new ways of understanding and managing international order, and the Cold War concept may be an important element in how we frame that challenge. Having said that, though, here is my question. If we imagine a spectrum of responses here with hot war at one end, and we don't want that, and a total capitulation of all conflicting interests at the other, so like handing over Taiwan and accepting PRC sovereignty over all of the South China Sea, that's the other end of the spectrum, and we don't want that either, what is in the range of policy responses that fit within the Cold War concept in the middle? Or do we need another category separate to Cold War, such as Ambassador Rudd's managed strategic competition? So it's distinct from Cold War, but if we had that, would it be closer to the hot war end of the spectrum or the capitulation end? I'm not sure. Unless, you know, we get caught up too much in this abstract discussion, let's make it concrete, Alan. Any discussion of Cold War I is going to locate the concept of containment
1: centrally. How do you see containment fitting in here? Well, containment is different. It's the description of a strategy, not a condition. Its origins, of course, lie in the famous long telegram of George Kennan, which he sent from the US Embassy in Moscow in 1946 uh, when he was posted there. The, the telegram itself, Darren, is, is it now available online and we should put it in the show notes because It's really a remarkable document, and I'm I'm sure we have many listeners from DFAT who who would like to think that their own reporting and advice from overseas had the impact of this one telegram. It's uh, it's fascinating to see the perspective that he puts on it. It was subsequently, of course, articulated in a lot of different forms, but the core of containment was that the US should not push back the Soviet Union, but it should seek to contain it within its post-war boundaries. The Soviet Union was never going to challenge the US economically in the world, but it's quite possible that China might. So if, in Washington's view, such a challenge inevitably brings China into conflict with a vital American interest, that is, it considers that vital American interest to be remaining the world's preeminent economic power, then containment is an inevitable response. Containment meaning making every effort to limit China's economic growth and therefore the benefits it gains from the effective operations of a free and open trading system. It also, of course, engages some very specific Australian interests. The problem here is that the strategy of containment against Soviet military expansion was a realistic aim, which could work and which did work. That's not the case, I think, with the economic containment of the world's second largest economy. I can't think of any other way of describing US policy towards China now than containment, but I remain strongly of the view that this is not going to secure in the end, the national aims of America. Mm. Well, you're getting to the heart of the dilemma,
0: Alan. To bring you back to something you said a few moments ago, we do need new ways of understanding and managing international order. So if Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, were sitting here right now, I imagine he would say that the post-war order that prevailed until recently stopped being fit for purpose for at least two reasons – First, because it enabled Beijing to gain asymmetric and he would say unfair economic advantages because the economic rules, among other things, were not designed to handle an economic system of state-directed capitalism like we have in China and what the Harvard scholar Mark Wu labelled China Inc in a brilliant 2016 article that I'll post. And second, because the nature of modern technology means that A foundational technology like semiconductors is too intimately tied up with strategic or even battlefield advantage to allow unfettered economic activity in that space. So what you've called a policy of economic containment, and I can't disagree with you on that label, represents precisely a new way of understanding and managing international order. Now, your disagreement is not unreasonable, but what it tells me is that even if you're right, the status quo even in this one specific trade category, let alone anything else, is also not sustainable. But let's turn then to current events. And I'm thinking of Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow. What's most interesting to me about that visit and what China is doing generally is what it reveals about how Beijing is navigating the trade-offs in the type of order that it wants to see. And that order, of course, includes the prevailing balance of power. As Evan Weigenbaum has pointed out a few times, China has irreconcilable interests between, on the one hand, counterbalancing US power, which means supporting Russia, and on the other hand, defending their commitment to sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs, as well as supporting a stable global economy and market access. Weigenbaum describes this Beijing straddle, which we've seen over the past 12 months, whereby China is tacking uncomfortably between these two irreconcilable sets of interests. But I interpret this visit as a clear signal that Xi Jinping's highest priority is competing with the United States, with Putin's Russia seen as an indispensable partner in that enterprise. A readout I saw from a Chinese foreign ministry official said that the two shared their view that, quote, this relationship has gone far beyond the bilateral scope and acquired critical importance for the global landscape and the future of humanity. End quote. So this sounds to me like China sees Russia and she sees Putin as an intimate partner. But Russian's foreign policy is not that of a builder, right? It's a disruptor and a chaos agent, which is not really China's style. And nor, you know, nor is it, it does it make it easy for me to see a Russian model of disruption as a sustainable and productive model of, as you say, Alan, understanding and managing international order. So therefore, I think China deepening ties with Russia only makes sense in the context of pushing back against Washington and dismantling those parts of the existing order that neither leader likes. So my takeaway from this meeting is to have, I think, even greater clarity on China's interests and what Beijing is willing to give up or trade off to protect those interests. I do think China's embrace of Russia here is a mistake because Ukraine is such a unifying issue for the West. Basically, everyone can agree that the invasion is reprehensible. But Xi Jinping seems indifferent to being tarred with that brush. The consequence is that it will only harden containment-style strategic thinking. As the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said just this past week, quote, How China continues to interact with Putin's war will be a determining factor for EU-China relations going forward, end quote. And she called for bolder policy towards China.
1: Yeah, we were talking before about the long telegram and Kennan's containment policy. It's really worth looking in that telegram at the way Kennan describes Russian, not Soviet, but Russian approaches to the world. And you can see so much continuity in Putin's behaviour from that that Kenan was observing back in the 1940s. Uh, look, this brings for me down the question that matters most. What do we do? How do we manage our way through these uh, tempests? The history of the Cold War provides some suggestions for that. One of the, uh, the great scholars of the period, John Lewis Gaddis, describes the core intellectual effort for policymakers through all those years as the pursuit of stability. In his uh, 1987 book, The Long Peace, he said, Stability is not the same thing as politeness. It is a sense of caution, maturity and responsibility on both sides. It requires the ability to distinguish posturing, something in which all political leaders indulge, from provocation, which is something else again. It requires recognition of the fact that competition is a normal rather than an abnormal state of affairs in relations between countries, much as it is in relations between major corporations, but that this need not preclude the identification of certain common or corporate or universal interests as well. It requires, above all, a sense of the relative rather than the absolute nature of security, that one's own security depends not only upon the measures one takes in one's own defence, but also upon the extent to which these create a sense of insecurity in the mind of one's adversary." Another uh, great historian of the period, Odana Westad, who's now based at Yale, but who looked at the Cold War not from the centre of the conflict in Europe, but from the margins, from Central America and Southern Africa and Vietnam and the Horn of Africa and, uh, and Afghanistan and so on. In his book, The Global Cold War, he wrote that, and I'm quoting him again, Much of the future may therefore depend on how we revise our actions in order to reduce the potential for violent conflict. If there's one big lesson of the Cold War, it is that unilateral military intervention does not work to anyone's advantage, while open borders, cultural interaction and fair economic exchange benefit all. This is not a pacifist argument, I believe firmly in the right of self-defence when attacked, but it is an argument that recognises that in a world that is becoming increasingly diverse ideologically, just as communications tie us closer together, the only way of working against increased conflict is by stimulating interaction while recognising diversity and, when needed, acting multilaterally to forestall disastrous events. The Cold War remains a dire example of what the world looks like when the opposite happens and regimes of global intervention take hold. So, look, we would be wise, I think, to listen to and learn the lessons of the last Cold War and containment policies before we embark on the new one. But both those historians and writers really underline the point you made, Darren, which is that cold wars can become hot. And we were very lucky that the last one didn't.
0: Yeah, very wise words, Alan. I think it's also then worth bringing China back into the conversation because to me, China continues to lack the confidence to propose and build a positive vision of international order, even if we stipulate that it would not do so in the way that Westad would suggest, and again, I'd really refer and encourage listeners to check out this appearance by Stephen Kotkin on the China Talk podcast, because he he talks about the nature of communism and the indeed the, the all or nothing nature of communist governance. He says just like you can't be half pregnant, you can't be half communist. The party is a monopoly, or it unravels politically, and you know that creates a mindset for how you do governance domestically, and maybe that is sustainable over a long period of time inside China. But it's unclear whether that mindset can sustain Beijing's leadership of international order. And Alan, you, you mentioned the, the long telegram, and there's an interesting line that I just want to pull out from that, where Kenan writes, at the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is a traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. And I think you know, one of the great contributions was, as you said earlier, kind of describing where that Russian or Soviet insecurity came from. And I think to understand how to interact with China is to understand where Chinese insecurity comes from. And a lot of it, you know, I think does come from the way in which they govern themselves. And so I might take this opportunity to plug a paper I first mentioned last year that I co-authored with my PhD supervisor, John Eikenberry, in which we sort of recognising that, China's leaders themselves are anything but specific on what they want China's preferred international order to look like. We try to do the job for them and speculate on the character and trajectory of a China-led hegemonic order. So that's now actually been published in the journal Security Studies. And in the show notes, I'll post a link where the first 50 people who click on it will be able to bypass the paywall for the journal. But I'll also separately post a link to the free version again. So um, let's then finish With an Australian perspective, it's impossible to deny now that we live in a time of immense change and complexity. You've said this, the foreign minister has said this, as well as many others. But there is rhetorical power and political consequence in labelling the current state of international affairs as Cold War II or a new Cold War and using language like containment. We've talked about this before, but let's focus the question here. How should Australian foreign and security policy manage what seem to be these hardening
1: geopolitical fault lines? The first thing we should be doing is giving policymakers the ideas and structures for thinking about security in this sort of world, which is what we've been talking about today. If you think Australia can't contribute here, you just have to look at the names recorded around where you work at the ANU, Darren. The Coral Bell School, the Hedley Bull Building, the Crawford School, Robert O'Neill, who led the International Institute of Strategic Studies and headed SDSC here, all of them had a really critical influence. This is not sort of over-egging the pudding or whatever you do with puddings. They were really important in shaping the practical issues of managing the world, a world of nuclear weapons, in the 1950s and 60s. All this was uh, coming into being at a time in in those years after the ANU was founded with these sort of national ambitions. So big thing there is that they worked effectively at the margins between theory and practice. This group of Australians and others found themselves deeply engaged in rethinking the whole idea of international security in a nuclear age, and we need this sort of fundamental rethinking again. I mean, we haven't talked today about artificial intelligence, for example, but that's going to be at least as impactful a cause, at least as impactful a shift in international relations as nuclear weapons did. And we've just begun the process of thinking about all of that. And because for Australia the the stakes, whether they're economic or political or strategic, are so much higher than they were in the competition with the Soviet Union, the need for us to influence American and Chinese policy outcomes in ways that serve our own interests is as high as it gets.
0: Couldn't agree more, Alan. Look, the only thing I would add is... Yeah, I guess continuing a point I've made many times on the podcast lately is that the pathway to influence, I think, has to lie through our region. Our foreign minister, Penny Wong, has said many times in speeches that smaller countries do have agency. And so where I see work to be done is in persuading our neighbours in the region of this truth and in coming up with ideas on how they can exercise more influence over American and Chinese policy.
1: And on that note, let's wrap up with reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Well, it's nothing that I've read uh, read this week, actually, but the discussion about the uh, the Cold War sent me back to John Lewis Gaddis's magisterial, and I don't use that word about many things, biography of uh, George F. Kennan called George F. Kennan, An American Life. It really is one of the most impactful books I've read about both international relations and about US foreign policy. And it ought to be on the reading list of everyone who worries about where the world goes next. Thanks, Alan. Well, we're
0: very much in autumn here in Canberra. It's my favourite season. And I've recently rediscovered the music of Nora Jones, whose first album I bought way back in 2002, but for whatever reason never kept up with what she was doing. Her gentle warmth and ability to slow things down, which I think really fits with the shifting of the seasons and creates a little space to reflect, has been very restorative for me in recent weeks, especially as I and loved ones have been battling colds and the flu. So other than her 2002 album, come away with me two other albums to check out are the 2004 feels like home and the 2012 little broken hearts and that's all for today's episode of australia in the world we thank walter konagi for research in audio editing and rory stenning for composing our theme music until next time